Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. So again, Ephesians, starting with chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you, Bruce. Would you do that? Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate that. So some of you have been asking how I'm doing, coming off of my inner ear surgery, and been doing fairly well, got the okay to go flying. I was gone last week at a conference last weekend, and uh, flew there, and it was great, but coming back kind of irritated the ear again. The pressure got to me, and so I have a lot of inflammation right now in my, my ear, and uh, the doctor put me on lots of medication to try to reduce that. And I just have like cotton mouth. It is just so dry right now. So forgive me. I'm just going to hold this uh, bottle of water as I teach this morning, okay? So it's going to give me that little bit of indulgence here. We'll get through this morning. Hey, you know, we're starting a brand new series. Uh, I'm really excited about it. It's called A Shared Life, Compelling Christian Community. Um, You know, first and foremost, uh, the Christian life is a life that is relational. Uh, It is a life that is shared. Janelle alluded to it this morning as we began in worship, that we are brought together uh, to become part of Christ's body. uh, And in Christ's body, we literally are uh, God's family. And uh, it it is a wonderful thing. It is something uh, of great value and meaning and importance, and it is a great witness uh, to the world around us. My life uh, was changed in a really positive way about 20 years ago. I'll never forget. I was in the shower, and Lori came in, and she said, hey, some guy on the phone, uh, and he wants to know if you're related to a man named Peter McCarrow. And I said, well, I, I, I am. Uh, Peter McCarroll was my father's father. He was my, my grandfather. But as you know the story, I, I really didn't know my dad and, and didn't really know my grandfather. Um, but this man was calling from Texas. His name was William McCarrow. And William uh, was an older gentleman, and he was trying to do a history of the McCarrow family, going all the way back to Italy 
to the present time in the United States. And so I said, well, tell him I'll call him back when I get out of the shower. And so I did. And it turns out that uh, the gentleman calling, uh, William, would have been my father's cousin. Okay? And it was amazing growing up with the last name McCarroll, but really not knowing much about it other than its uh, nationality or the origin of it. Didn't really know much about family. Didn't really have family ties. And so what William began to do is tell me about a man named Dominic and how Dominic left Italy in an area called Genoa in about 1827. And the reason he left um, was that he punched a priest. (laughs) He was 18 years old. And he got on a boat and he came to the United States. And he came into an area that we would know today as southern Louisiana. Okay? And uh, he settled there. In fact, he made his living on the Mississippi River. And they think that actually McCarrow may have been French Italian uh, because all of the family records in Louisiana. Uh, are in French. And uh, Dominic had four sons, Jean and, and Pierre, Peter, right? Uh, and another Dominic, and so on and so forth. But all those are French names. So they were Italian, but they were French Italian. And they, southern, they settled in southern Louisiana. Well, you know that's kind of Cajun country, right? And uh, two of the sons died. Two of them lived. The two that lived, they went to Texas in about the middle 1800s or so. Uh, and there they became businessmen and they worked together in business in the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, until the brothers split because the business expanded from Dallas-Fort Worth to El Paso, Texas. And then in El Paso, Texas would be my side of the two brothers of the McCarroll family. Uh, and my grandfather, my father, and all those McCarrows on that side came from El Paso, Texas. Uh, and uh, I'm among the first to be born outside of Texas. So now you have to understand, at that time I was in my 40s, late 30s, 40s. And it's the first time I'd ever heard about my heritage. Right? It's kind of exciting. And then he sent me all this. And as he continues to do work and found out more... Um, he added more and sent me more. And, and then the, the caveat to that was that there's a family grave plot in Fort Worth, Texas, where generations of McCarrows are buried. And I guess it's open to me if I'd like it. Um, you know, you just never know what you're going to find out with a phone call in the shower. <laughs> but why do I tell you that story? Because I had a heritage I didn't know I had. I wasn't aware of it, but but once I found out about it, it changed a lot about me. It gave me a greater sense of who I am, uh, where I came from, what I'm about, and it it really kind of informs about me going, moving forward. Now, all of you that that have that and, and you've done genealogy or you've done things that help you understand your family heritage, that's important to you, isn't it? You know, the same is true when we look at our family heritage as followers of Jesus Christ. The truth is this. Many of us come to faith in Christ. We bear the name 
Christian, that is, we are Christ followers, but that's where it ends. That's where it stops. We, we really don't know much about our family heritage. We really don't know much about our inheritance. And it's only when we really dig into the Word of God and Scripture, we begin to find out who we really are. What that name really means. What does it mean to us individually? What does it mean to us collectively as the family of God? That we would be Christians. That we would be Christ followers. When you begin to understand all that that means and all that's entailed in that, it's a game changer. It's a life changer. Um, You'll never look at yourself. You'll never look at the world. You'll never look at your sense of purpose, your sense of calling, the same way again. It just changes everything. And so here's my hope. As we begin this new fall series called A Shared Life, Compelling Christian Community, that each of us will recapture a sense of what it means to have the name Christian. What our inheritance is. What, what, how our past informs our future. The great family, the great cloud of witness that, that you and I are a part of. And over the next several weeks, as we talk about what it means to live a shared life together, that is, sharing life together with Christ in the center, that as we do that, it will be life-changing. And you'll have a renewed sense of who you really are and uh, what we're called to and what our life is about. So this morning, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we're looking at chapter 4, verses one through six. Now, Paul in his letter of Ephesians, it can be divided into to two sections. Chapters one through three really talk about good theology, um, the theology behind what it means to, to bear the name and have the name Christian. What exactly does that mean? How do we get that name? And if you're looking in your Bibles right now and you look at Ephesians 4, or excuse me, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes this, and, and this is really central to where we're heading today. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's 2 through 9. And so the whole idea here and what Paul is going to develop in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is the glory of God's grace. God's grace at work in your life, in my life, and and through God's grace that we're saved. God's grace is His unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's not because of something. It's not if. It is solely a gift from God towards us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever would believe in Him, right, would not perish, but have eternal life. That God was at work in His Son, Jesus Christ. Because of His love of you and me. It's His grace. And it's by grace that we're saved. Can't earn it. Didn't deserve it. It's God's unmerited favor so that no one can boast. So Paul's developing this thought that 
You know, we have been saved, right? By grace. Been saved by grace. But then it goes on. Look at verse 10. God saved you from something for something. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now think about that. God not only saves us from something, our sin. The penalty of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus. But He saves us for something. For good works that He prepared beforehand that you and I would walk in them. So we've been called literally from something for something. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is developing this thought. And he's helping us understand uh, kind of where our family has come from. What its origins are. Now, all families share a story, don't they? All families share a story. If you went to the Lundberg house, and you sat down and said, tell us about the Lundbergs. Tell us about the Bruckners. They would tell the story. They would tell the story about parents and grandparents and, and immigration from the old country and all those things that make up the family story. Or the Hagies, right? Or the Blacks, or any of us. We, we have a family story. I learned the Macaro story. That was important to understanding kind of who I am and, and, and where I came from. The same is true as followers of Jesus Christ in the family of God. Now, our story is the biblical story. If you were to take the whole of Scripture, you can divide it into four parts. Right? From beginning to end. Are you ready? It's our story. It's your story. It's my story. It's our family story. It starts with creation. That God created us. Right? He created the heavens and the earth. And He created man and woman. And He created us in His, what? Image. Uh, the Latin for that is the imago Dei. The image of God. Okay? And He creates us in His own image. And of all the works of His creation, we are the only ones that He created as spirit beings. That we would have the capacity to relate to Him, to communicate with Him, um, to have relationship with Him. That literally, He created us that we, were, we would enter into the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Okay? That's central to the Christian faith. It's central to what we're going to read in the Scripture this morning. And He literally created us to be in relationship with Him. But then sin enters the world. So the first part of our story is creation. That's where we've come from, right? Who created us. The reason why we were created. But then there's the fall. And that's the second part of the story. Sin enters the world. And, and there's brokenness in the relationship between God and man. Not only that, the fall affects all of creation. All of creation is corrupted by sin. In fact, if you read in Romans 8, 
It says, the creation groans in eager anticipation of the redemption that draws near. That redemption in Christ Jesus. So that when Christ comes, okay, Christ defeats sin and death, but there's going to be redemption and all things that were corrupted by the fall will be redeemed. Not only us, but all of creation that was touched and tarnished by sin. So, there is the fall. Excuse me, there is creation. There's the fall. Then there's redemption. That's the third part of the story. And then from the very beginning to the very end, as you read in Genesis, God already enacts His plan. Where He says there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman, Eve, and the offspring of the serpent. And that quite literally what's going to happen is the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. You know, that, that, is, that is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. That from the minute the fall happened, God already had a plan of redemption in His Son Jesus. Okay? And it says, and the serpent will strike at His heel. Well, you know what that does? If the serpent is striking the heel, what position does Jesus have over the serpent? One of authority. Because all things were created by Him, for Him, and in Him all things are held together. And so Christ, in the position of authority, is going to crush Satan's head, which He did. And Satan struck at His heel. That's the suffering. That's the persecution. That was His death on the cross. And yet, because of the work of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you and I are redeemed. Redemption is a, is a term that's used in finance. It's redeeming something. It's paying a price for something. And Jesus pays the price for our sin, your sin and mine. We have been redeemed. Okay? But then that's the third part. The first part is what? Creation. Creation. The second part is what? The third part is what? And here's the fourth part. Restoration. I'm telling you, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. At His second advent, all things will be fully restored. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, right? And we will be totally glorified. That's the work of restoration. Right now, we're living in an in-between time between redemption and restoration. That's, that's where we are right now. But it's coming. So, that is our common story. That's our family story. That's our heritage. That's God's story. It's in Scripture. And guess what He does? He invites you and I to enter into that story. To find our place in that story as His family. So, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 talks about grace. It develops kind of the theological underpinning of, of who we are as followers of Christ. And, and how did that happen? Right? By grace, you and I are saved. But then we get into chapters 4-6. through six. And you'll see in Paul's writing as he writes letters to these various churches, he starts out with theology. Okay? Good theology. And that's what he does in Ephesians. But then what he does... He moves from theology to what we call ethics. Or, or in light of this theology, in light of the truths that make us who we are, 
that grounds us in our faith. In light of those things, then how are we to live? How are we to live? That's the ethic of Christianity. The practical working out, the living out of it. How is our faith expressed in our lives, individually and together? And and that's what he talks about in chapters 4 through 6. Okay, in the book of Ephesians. So, as we talk about a shared life, as we talk about a life in relationship to one another, what Paul is going to talk about really has its basis in a prayer that Jesus prayed before He went to the cross. It's in John 17. It's His high priestly prayer. He starts out by praying for Himself. Then He prays for His disciples. And the third thing He does is He prays for all believers. Past, present, and future. That's all you all and me too. Okay? And this is what He prayed. Look at this. I have given them the glory that You gave Me, that they may be one. Now, remember, one. What we're talking about here is the oneness of God and the oneness of His people that enter into the relationship, that oneness with God. Do you see that? That's really important. So, I have given them the glory that You gave Me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete, what's that word? Unity. By the way, that's not agreement, because we can have disagreements, but even in our disagreements, we always have a unity. And what we're going to find is that unity isn't something that we create or comes from us or our ethic or how we live out. It's given to us. It already exists in the Godhead. And in the Holy Spirit as, as He is at the, the heart and the center of Christian community. That, that unity that was from the beginning is a unity that's present in the body of Christ, His church. And it's not about creating unity. It's about preserving unity that already exists. It's unity given to us. Make sense? Alright. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How will the world know? How will the world know? What's our witness? Our unity. And our unity is based in what? Love. Jesus said earlier in the Gospel, in John, He says, all men, all people will know that you are My disciples because of your love for one another. And that, that love is at the center and core of who we are in Christian family as we are unified together in oneness that originates with the Godhead. Man, that's great theology, isn't it? Aren't you great? Aren't you glad you came here to hear that this morning? Aren't you already finding out good stuff about your heritage and who you are? It makes a difference, doesn't it? All right, here we go. It gets better. Man, I get excited. So, in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, he says this, For we were all baptized by one Spirit as to form, what? One body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given 
the one spirit to drink. Man, that, that we are identified with Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. And, and we bear the name Christian. It, it's our heritage. It's who we are. And it, and it supersedes whether you're Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. We're one. We're one. It's great stuff. We, we share identity in Christ. We share a common experience of Christ. We share the values and the virtues modeled by Christ. And that there is literally a balance between what we believe, what we understand to be our calling, right? Our call to salvation. God calls us. By the way, no one comes to the Son unless the Father first calls them, draws them. Um, Calvin called that the effectual calling. Okay, It's the, it's the, the providence of God. It's His sovereignty calling us, drawing us to Himself. Otherwise, we'd have to take credit for our salvation. But we can't because Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace you're saved, right? Through faith, not of yourself, that no one can boast. It is a complete and total work of God. Now, the sermon this morning I call the, the weight of unity. And this is where it comes from. Look at your passage here. Let's look at the first three, three verses of chapter 4. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. A prisoner. Basically, what he's saying is, you know what? As one who has been captured by the love and the effectual call of, of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. As one who is totally sold out. As one who has given his life to sharing the good news. That's what he's talking about, being a prisoner here. I'm captured by the love of God. By the grace of God. By the way, we should be too. Right? He's saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling, of that, of that call of God drawing you to salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Live a life worthy of that. The word worthy is, is I mean, it is powerful here. In the Greek, it's axios. Or axios. And literally what it's referring to is weight that's balanced on a scale. If you look at two sides of a scale... When they're balanced, you have a cross beam. And the cross beam isn't like this, or it's not like that. The cross beam shows that the two sides are balanced. And what Paul is really saying here is the weight of unity should show the balance between what you believe, your calling of who you are and who you called to be, the salvation you have in Jesus, and the practical working out of that calling in your life. There should be a balance. Your life should reflect who you are. Who you've been called to be. Okay? That's what he's really saying here. And so then he goes on to say, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Okay? 
And so what he's doing is now he's talking about the virtue. The virtue that Christ modeled for you and me. The virtues that are necessary to preserve, not to create, because unity has been given to us. We don't create it. We preserve it. Okay? And here are the virtues that are necessary. Humility, that's renouncing all self-centeredness. By the way, do you know that in the time that Paul wrote this, the word for humility did not exist in Roman or Greek? Didn't exist the way he uses it here. Many think that the word humility that appears here in this, in this chapter really introduced the term into the language. That it was created to explain who we're to be in Christ. The humbleness that, that we have. Because prior to that, humility in the culture was looked upon as something bad. It was associated with humiliation. No one wants to be humiliated. That was weakness, not strength. But Paul flips it. He creates a term to describe what God calls us to be. Humble is to renounce all self-centeredness. It's literally to put others before yourself. That's, that, that's humility. You look at Christ. He models humility in the biblical sense. This word is a biblical word. It was introduced to the language through the Bible. Interesting, huh? Humble, gentle. The word gentle has with it this whole idea of renouncing harshness and forthfulness. It is meekness. It is strength that's controlled. Okay? Patience. Patience speaks of renouncing the tyranny of our own agenda. That in our humility and our gentleness, we would be long-suffering and patient. We, we wouldn't be so caught up in our own agenda that we want to impose that and that's the number one priority we want to place on other people in the body of Christ. What we want. Me, mine, I, my agenda. That doesn't preserve unity. Okay? In fact, we're called to give ourselves away. And then there's bearing in love. And really, what that means is it's, it's renouncing our right and our rights. Our right to be right. Our right to be correct. My right to say, ah, Sean, I told you I was right. Right? I'm right. Look at me. I'm the example you should follow. What's wrong with you? How could you live that way, Sean? Right? I'm right. You're wrong. Right? That insistence on being right. And what he's saying here is, you know what? We surrender that. And it's not so much about being right. You, you do want to be right, but it's doing what's right. And you can be right, but not do what's right. Does that make sense? You can be right and be right all alone. Because no one wants to be around you. Because you're like a porcupine in your rightness. And that does not preserve unity. Look at Paul later on in Ephesians 4. Verses 29 through 31. And I'm going over time. I'm sorry. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may be benefit those who listen. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. 
Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay? I'm telling you that if we do that, we will preserve the unity. We will preserve unity quickly. I saw this on Facebook. Actually, Sherry saw it, called my attention to it. Can we see that? That was from a notebook of a high schooler on Facebook. Now, let's look at it in more detail. Next slide. Someone offends me. We have two choices. Tell people all about it. The listener begins to think less of my offender. They join me in speaking negatively about my offender. What have I succeeded in doing? Causing others to sin, creating division in relationships, making myself more upset by rehashing the details over and over. Directly, knowingly, and willingly disobeying God's Word by reacting according to my flesh. That's our choice. We can choose to do that. Does that preserve unity? Or, someone offends me. Go directly to God in prayer. He listens to me and gives me His better perspective. And I guarantee you, if you're not being humble, gentle, patient, or bearing in love, which by the way, that word, that phrase, bearing in love means literally putting up with somebody in love. You get to put up with me. And I get to put up with you. Okay? All y'all. Okay? But if you're not being humble, gentle, patient, or bearing in love, I guarantee you, if you're listening to the Lord, if you go directly to Him in prayer, He will give you His better perspective. I feel peace. The need to vent to others is gone. I have honored God by valuing unity over the very temporary pleasure of gossiping and gaining sympathy from others. If we all just committed to that, we would be preserving the unity. Okay? That's why in your bulletin, worship guide, I have put in a relational covenant. This is our relational covenant. These are the steps we take. This is what we do here at Community Covenant. When there's disagreement, when there's conflict, this is how we resolve it. If we do this, we preserve unity. Okay? Read this over. Put it in your Bible. It's a good thing to use and to have. So, Paul in verses 1-3 through of chapter 4 talks about the exercise of preserving unity. In verses 4-6, through quickly, he talks about the basis of our unity. He goes back and he kind of gives us a refresher in theology. What is the basis of this unity? The unity that you and I can't create, but that we're called to preserve as a shared life together with Christ in the center. Okay? Here it is. Are you ready? It gets all the way back to our common story. The story of the the creation, the story of fall, the story of redemption, the story of restoration, the story of the Trinity who said, let us make man in our own image. The oneness of God. Okay? Paul writes this.
Coming out of verse 3, having made every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We just talked about that. Verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Now, you're going to see this. This is Trinitarian. It starts with one body, one Spirit. Alright? Then look where it goes. One Lord. That's Jesus Christ. So now we start with the Spirit, right? Now we're going to Jesus, the Lord. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. Then we go to God. Okay? So it's, it's tiered. It's tiered. Three tiers. Each having to do with a member of the Trinity. The oneness that's found in the Trinity. The oneness that our unity is based on. Ah, oh, it's good stuff. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Quickly, one body. The church is a single visible community representing Christ in the world. We are His body. One Spirit which indwells us through which Christ's body lives and moves. The Holy Spirit is the central agent of unity in the body of Christ. He indwells us and moves in us and among us. We have our life in Him. One hope. That's the, that's, the, that's the glory of God, our future inheritance in Jesus Christ. One Lord. Life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. Sorry, I'm getting excited. One faith. One faith refers to the core essential truths of the Gospel. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, let them be accursed. There are all kinds of different gospels in the world right now. But we are called to one faith, and that one faith upholds the core essential truths of the gospel and the gospel message, the person and work of Jesus Christ. One baptism. That baptism is into Christ. It's our identification with Him in His death and resurrection, sealing us with the Spirit and its incorporation into Christ's body. And the act of water baptism is that incorporation into the body of Christ. Okay? That's what Paul's speaking about in this context. And finally, one God, the Father of all believers. This was written at a time when there were many gods Many gods. Polytheistic culture and society. And you know what? We live in a culture and society today where there are many gods. But I urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to understand that you have one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And one Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's what we said in the Apostles' Creed. And we need to hold on to those truths. That's our inheritance. That's what makes us who we are. Don't let that go. Don't be swayed by the, by the culture and the spirit of the age we live in. That the relationship of God the Father to the members we unified in the body of Christ is that He is over all. He is sovereign Lord. He is through all. He works through us. And He is in all. He dwells in us. And that, my friends, is good news. Amen? Go ahead. You can clap. Okay? So... The basis of our shared life together are these core essential theological truths, the oneness that's anchored in our biblical story, 
that makes us family and that gives us compelling reasons for Christian community. I hope that we got this series off to a rousing start and I hope that you don't mind some good theology and some good ethic and I hope that you don't mind recommitting yourself along with me to preserving the unity that is the basis of our family and our fellowship. And I hope that you have a a greater sense and an excitement of what it means to bear the name Christian. Amen.